Early voting starts next week in New York. Fears of a fall COVID-19 spike abound. And the NCAA tournament is coming back to Albany. It's been a roller coaster of a week. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top stories. I would just point out we're talking on Thursday morning, so you're probably jinxing the heck out of me. We'll hear from former Nexium member India Oxenberg, who's produced a documentary about her experience. I was commanded to live in Albany from Allison Mack and Keith, who strategically placed me in Allison's house as a lure. And we'll tag along with members of the Capital District Latinos as they help Albany residents fill out the census. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. My name is India. I was in a cult for seven years. India Oxenberg spent seven years entrenched in Keith Raniere's shadowy cult-like organization, Nexium. She was also a member of his secret master-slave group, DOS, and was one of the women branded with Raniere's initials. She broke free of the organization after Raniere was arrested in 2018, and she plans to read a statement at his sentencing October 27th. But the journey out of Nexium and back to her mother, actress Catherine Oxenberg, and Southern California has not been easy. As part of her healing process, she's co-produced a four-part documentary series on her experience that premieres October 18th on Stars. So how did we all end up in the clutches of a monster? Keith Ranieri is the most horrific cult leader. Reporter Rob Gavin recently had the chance to sit down with a 29-year-old to talk about the show and her life in Nexium and DOS. What can you tell me about this show and how this came about? For a long time, I was being asked to do other media and I was getting requests to speak and share my story and I just was not ready. And I needed time and space and no noise to just think for myself for the first time and kind of process and heal what I had just gone through for seven years. So I declined. Um, It wasn't until I was introduced to Cecilia Peck and Imbal, and they told me about their vision for the the documentary that they saw about Nexium. And it was female focused with a woman's production team telling the story in a very honest, raw way that didn't sugarcoat anything and also explained the complexities of coercion and high control groups. And when they shared that with me, I thought, well, if there's anything that I can get behind, it would be something like that. Because that's not what I was hearing as a normal, you know, media approach. Mostly they were focusing on the sensational aspects or wanting to show me as cult girl or sex slave and minimize everything rather than show that there was a real person behind this experience who's going to let you in to these very vulnerable 
and exposure <laughs> moments. <laughs> what was it that first drew you to you know ESP uh, next team in the first place? Well, I was 19 years old when I went to my first intro presentation, just leaving a year of university. And I was in a transition time in my life and I was looking for something and I wanted structure and I wanted guidance and I wanted to build the skills that I thought I needed to be successful. So I went into Nexium's intro presentation with a very open mind and an open heart. Wasn't going in to criticize it. I was going in because I was curious. And this friend who I trusted told us that it was the thing that changed her life. So when you hear that, there's a natural curiosity. And so when I went to the presentation, I felt like they were speaking to me. I felt like everything they were saying that they could resolve were exactly the issues that I was having. So really wrong place, wrong time for me at least. And because it has nothing to do with your intelligence, really how you're raised, where you came from, what you're looking for. There's, there were all types of people in Nexium from all walks of life. So I think that's a common misconception that people have that maybe you need to be young or vulnerable or naive in order to fall prey to something like this. It's not like Nexium advertised itself as a cult. <laughs> it doesn't advertise no, itself. No, if it did, I don't think we would have joined. Actually, I know we wouldn't have joined. <laughs> but, uh, and, um, they actually uh, advertised themselves as the opposite. They were saying, we're this humanitarian successful program that's going to, you know, ignite your goals and get you to where you want to be in your life. And the truth is, it was a funnel to extort people and use them for Keith Raniere's perverted desires, whether it was for money or control or status or sex. I don't want to make light out of anything in this story at all, but as someone who lives in Albany, there's this, this notion of, hey, how would you like to leave Malibu, Southern California, yeah. and move to Albany, New York? And now, now you've lived in Albany, New York. What was the draw of relocating to Albany? I don't mean to make light there of that. There was no it, draw. I mean, yeah. actually, I never wanted to live in Albany. I was commanded to live in Albany from Allison Mack and Keith, who strategically placed me in Allison's house as a lure, which I was unaware of at the time. And he wanted her to have, I mean, this is horrible to say about myself, but this is sort of what I was at the time. He wanted her to have a pet, like somebody to take care of her house, entertain her, be her servant. And I was looking for something in my life that could help me grow. And the way that they positioned this was that it was going to be intensive one-on-one -on -one coaching for women only. And that's something we heard over and over again during the trial from uh, you know, various women who had been in DOS, that this was advertised as one thing and that it became something else. Was there that moment where you were like, what did I sign up for? Oh my God. Unfortunately, there were many moments. And because of the collateral, I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave without the thought of hurting my family. And so, yes, there were many moments. And I know that the other women in my group would cooperate that because they were there and they were having the same sort of reservations. Like, do we have to send more collateral? Like, why do we have to do this penance? Or like, we were questioning things, but the program discouraged any questioning. I mean, it's a totalitarian abusive dynamic so anything that you anytime you did question you were punished so you learn pretty quickly not to 
Did you know when you joined DOS that Keith Raniere was a part of it at all? No, I didn't. The whole idea of women helping women. I mean, it's butchered. It was totally butchered feminism. We thought that it was one thing and it was the opposite. And that is definitely a reoccurring theme. When you're involved, it would be about 2015 when you got involved in, in DOS. Was there a point in DOS where you're just like, I got to get out of here? I mean, there were definitely moments where I was upset and didn't want to do the things that I was being asked to do, like many, many moments like that. But I was still very much believing that what we were doing was good when I was there. And it wasn't until after I left that I realized what I had been subjected to. I had just kind of normalized it. And I was being told that everything that was being done to me was for my own benefit. And I trusted Allison and I trusted Keith that they wouldn't hurt me. And so it was really hard for me to accept that. The first time you heard about women being branded in this, I mean, what, what goes through your head when you hear that you know, the first time? Well, I mean, I was the first woman besides the first line of Keith. Yeah, the first line, yeah. yeah. That was branded. So I didn't really have anybody else to reference. Um, I was the first one that Danielle Roberts practiced on. I mean, before me was just oranges. So I didn't really know what to expect. I just knew that we had to be branded because that's what we had signed up for. And we didn't have the, we couldn't say no. I mean, we couldn't say no without consequences or being reprimanded or punished. So when I heard it coming out in the news, I think I just felt shocked because a part of me believed that this information would never leave Clifton Park. So it just was like, what? How is this out there? I mean, we thought this was this private little bubble world that we were living in. What was said to people in Nexium about the stories about Keith Raniere that had been out there? Like, yeah. Big news. I mean, everything, we were told a justification for every single thing that you might fear or might react to. Like, oh, what about that article? Oh, well, that person has a personal vendetta against Keith and wants to destroy them. Oh, no, that, that person was hired by a legal team to discredit us. I mean, there was literally a bullshit story or answer for anything that anyone might dispute. And if you were on the inside you would accept that. But from the outside, it's definitely a red flag. I want to talk a little bit about Allison Mack and, and, and what, what her role is in this, because there was a lot of emails that were played at the trial. And I don't think it would be a stretch to say she didn't come across well of them. I mean, there, there's a lot of emails between her and um, at least one or two of the victims, women in DOS, and I won't identify them because they haven't been identified publicly, where she was saying one thing and doing another. She was assigning them to have, to seduce Keith Raniere. So, I mean, what, what was the relationship like with Allison? Because people know this woman. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't watch Smallville. So I, I really. I didn't, I didn't watch know. it either. I didn't even really know about Allison before I met her. I mean, I lived with Allison in her house. I was like, a housemaid, friend, if you will, 
I mean, but I was technically her slave. And that was a really odd relationship because it was totally unnatural. Like we would never have been friends if this wasn't a forced relationship because of DOS. What was it like to live with someone who was, you know, like you say, your quote unquote uh, master? Intense. I mean, there was no on off switch for DOS. It was always on. So even if we were maybe sitting on the couch watching a movie, I was always aware that I was in the inferior position and I needed to be a certain way so that she would be happy and okay with me. And that was how I managed to take care of myself and not be abused on a daily basis. I mean, there were some days where we were totally fine and we, we would, it felt normal. And there were other days where she would just switch on a dime and be vicious and cruel to me and the other women. And it was unpredictable. And I think one of the more difficult things that I had to reconcile with is that I trusted this woman. I believed that she was my friend and that she cared for me. And the fact was she lied to me the entire time. I do consider her a victim of Keith Raniere. I really do. I think she is a broken person because of him. But she's going to have to deal with and face the judgment that the judge gives to her. And there's nothing that I can do about that. And I don't need to. It's not my job. She needs to confront that herself. What was it like? Your mom's this, obviously, to the world, a famous actress. And she's spoken for so long about how difficult it was when you, you, you know, what was it like when you got those messages from Catherine I mean, from, from your mom saying, hey, because we've seen that when she messaged you and you didn't, I mean, what was it that brought you back? I was under so much pressure from the higher ranking members of Nexium while I was there to just diminish anything that my mom said, to discredit her, to tell, they told me she was a psychopath and that she was trying to hurt me. And this is my mother, the woman that raised me. And so there was always a part of me that knew that maybe she was wrong and that this was a misunderstanding and that we would figure it out and we would come together because I wasn't seeing things the way she was seeing things at the time. I was too close to it to really evaluate it. But I went through a slew of emotions. I mean, there were times where I felt betrayed and outed by my mom. I was angry with her. I felt confused. I missed her. I was sad. It was very muddy and confusing time for me. But the, the real thing was I did not want to have a life without my mom. Like the idea of continuing and having a future that didn't include a relationship with my mother sounded awful. I've seen way too many fractured families in my life to want that for myself. And so there was a part of me that felt really driven to figure out what happened to me after I got out so that I could heal with my mom. I did want to ask, because I mentioned about Ranieri, what it was like dealing with him as a person one-on-one -on -one in a conversation? What's it like having to, to be in his orbit? You know, he's really good at sort of transforming himself to whoever he's around. So with me, he behaved very friendly and casual because like, I'm kind of like that, like a little light and friendly and casual. And that's how he got in with me. He was able to break down my own barrier and make me trust him and consider him a friend so that I would open up more and more and disclose more information about myself. So he was very strategic in that way as well. 
You can hear more about India Oxenberg's story and the latest in the Nexium saga in our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. Visit timesunion.com or find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, let's take a look at what appeared in the Times Union and online this week. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over some of the top headlines this week. It was not as crazy a week as it was last week in terms of volume of headlines, but, you know, the seriousness of some of the headlines is not to be diminished. I would just point out we're talking on Thursday morning, so you're probably jinxing the heck out of me. Thursday's our day to record, so we always we always do so with caution, knowing that headlines will uh, inevitably emerge on Thursday evening or Friday. However, uh, where we are now, it seems like there's uh, some somewhat alarming news with regard to uh, COVID-19 spikes in the state and in the region, notably in one of our region's correctional facilities. Can you kind of give us just an outline of what's going on? Yeah, well, last week we talked about some of the downstate hotspots, including in Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods that have, uh, you know, that's occupied so much of the governor's uh, time over the course of the last uh, two or three weeks or so. But um, on Wednesday, Bethany Bump reported on an alarming spike in Greene County, uh, really uh, the vast majority of it centered at Greene Correctional Facility, which is a state prison in Cooksackie. 89 active COVID-19 cases at the prison among on Wednesday, only 93 active confirmed cases in the entire county. So that's that's a pretty hefty representation there at the prison. And it goes to something that, you know, prison activists have talked about, which is the fact that these facilities, because of their very, you know, unique nature, have the potential to become, you know, contagion hotspots for for the virus. So not surprising, but um, alarming at just the sheer number. Uh, moving on to an ongoing series that we've had from reporter Chris Bragg. This one has to deal with the state's handling of child death records. Can you kind of uh, give us a little synopsis of what the latest installment includes? Going back several months, even uh, before the death of uh, a young boy in Troy, Chris Bragg, who's an outstanding investigative reporter, a part of our, our State House Bureau, has been looking into the deaths of children who are in the family court system. In other words, children whose uh, custody has been a matter of uh, at issue within the family courts. Many of these children um, have been the subject of abuse allegations, whether lodged by a parent or a relative or a neighbor or something like that. When these children die, including at the hands of parents or guardians, if they have been under the care of local child protective services officials, uh, who are, of course, uh, in the main county workers, the state Office of Children and Family Services is supposed to do a report. Those reports can be disclosed to the public. What the state agency does is it goes to that county CPS agency and says, hey, can you think of any reason why this report should not be released to the public? There is only one exemption that the state agency can use, and that is that the the disclosure of that report might re-traumatize the surviving siblings of the dead child. Now, 
the state agency will not say how often it has followed the recommendations of the county CPS agencies in suppressing those reports. But Chris Bragg found this week that more than 700 reports over the course of the last decade have been suppressed. Obviously, Jess, the county agencies whose performance is under question often in these reports, in other words, they might not have gone far enough to protect the child to investigate abuse allegations, they have an extreme and obvious conflict of interest in recommending to the state agency whether that report, which once again touches on their performance, should be suppressed. So essentially what you've got is a state agency that is allowing potentially conflicted county agencies to offer what, uh, as far as we know, is a dispositive you know, argument about whether or not the public should know more about the county's handling of these tragic cases. Chris is going to continue to dig into it. I hope that lawmakers are reading these stories because it's a region that is ripe for reform, without a doubt. And again, you can read all of Chris's uh, stories in this series at timesunion.com. Staying with the state, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo has finally released his long-awaited book. Or I guess it's not really long-awaited because he he wrote it in a very short amount of time. But (laughs) Yeah, you never hear about a book that is short-awaited, I guess. But American Crisis Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic came out earlier this week. It is, uh, as the governor has described it, something of a compendium of his daily COVID briefings. I have not read it yet, but based on everything that I've read about it, including Chris Churchill's outstanding column that was in Thursday's print edition, you know, it does very much have that feel. The most touching parts of it are the more unguarded moments where the governor talks about, you know, missing his father, former Governor Mario Cuomo talks about what it was like to be sort of on lockdown in the governor's mansion with his daughters, which was both, of course, a good thing and occasionally comical, you know, thing as well. Good to have your family around you. While at the same time, it includes a a lot of material that that is, uh, you know, full of self-praise, while at the same time tailoring the history of the pandemic in a way that is favorable to the governor, most notably in his continued defense and his continued suppression of data surrounding the deaths of nursing home patients in the state. We are still waiting uh, almost, or I think more than four months after the state uh, health department produced a kind of self-exonerating report on nursing home deaths. We're still waiting for the number of nursing home residents who did not die in that facility, but rather died in hospitals. There is no excuse uh, for the the administration holding back that data. It's now the subject of a lawsuit by the Empire Center, but the governor and his administration continue to cover that up. And of course, uh, Cuomo also denied that he wants to run for president. He says he'd rather be fishing, right? Yeah. And in addition to that, the the governor also uh, noted in a section of the book that was analyzed by uh, Ed McKinley on our Capitol Bureau that he is not interested in going to a potential Biden administration, that he's perfectly happy being governor of New York for as long as its citizens will have him. All right. On to a bit of happy news, or at least happy news for the region. The NCAA tourney is coming back to Albany. What's going on there? 
Yes, the Times Union Center, a facility that shares a name with this fine institution, announced on Wednesday that the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament in 2023, the Division I women's basketball East Regional semifinals and finals in 2024, and the East Regional semifinals and final in Division I men's hockey in 2022 and 2026. And Jess, yes, I'm reading that. I did not memorize it will all be coming to Albany, which is, of course, fantastic news for downtown businesses, um, many of which were, like basketball fans, heartbroken that part of this year's March Madness that was supposed to occur in Albany was, of course, canceled by the pandemic. So, of course, all of these events are far off. So they, uh, they give us hope that there will be and after when we are no longer uh, so shut down by by the pandemic. So great news for sports fans, great news for fans of downtown Albany, and just uh, hopefully terrific news for, for student athletes who are only now beginning their college careers that at some point, if they practice hard and win, they'll end up playing here in upstate New York. Well, that is definitely something to look forward to on all accounts. Casey, thank you as always for joining us. Uh, and you can read all of the headlines, read more about all the headlines we discussed at timesunion.com. After the break, we'll connect with local activists trying to help people fill out their census forms. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. This week, the Supreme Court of the United States allowed the Trump administration to suspend the census count. The suspension, intended to give time for the administration to battle lawsuits in the lower courts over cutting the census short, effectively ended it two weeks early. The census is a count of the United States population. It's used in many ways. Among them is to determine congressional district lines and federal funding for communities. As of the end of September, a little more than half of Albany residents had completed the census. In the city's lower-income communities, where residents are primarily people of color, census completion rates were much lower, ranging from 33 to 45 percent. The Capital District Latinos organization received a $15,000 grant in September to help increase census completion in those communities. Activists Ceci Alfonso and Luz Marquez Benbo were among those contracted to go door to door. Reporter Masara Makati recently joined them on an outing and told me about the experience. Did you do your census? 
you got a chance to go out with them and see what they were doing, right? Yes, I did. I went and spent time with them two times while they were doing census outreach work. Um, the first time they had set up a table in front of Capital District Latinos building on Central Avenue. And they were just, you know, stopping people and definitely being very in your face about it. And, oh, wait, wait, did you get counted? Did you get counted? Come here, let me get you counted. It'll get us money. And being very, definitely being very, let's, what, what would the word be here? Very forward? Yes, forward and very motivated. <laughs> Five minutes, your census. We need you. Did you see the debates last night? And then the second time I went out with them, they went to the Skyline Garden Apartments in Arbor Hill, and they were just going door to door, um, knocking on the doors, yelling through the windows, staying in front of a door for at least a few minutes while yelling, you know, hola, como esta? Did you do your census? No somos Jehovah Witness. Oh, bueno. No somos Jehovah Witnesses, gente. Vamos a hacer los censos. Doña Juana, ¿cómo está? Well, you wrote about how um, Ceci Alfonso and the other census workers that you went around with said that humor was really important in getting through to folks in those neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. It was because culturally... There's this warmth, especially in the Latino culture and culture similar to that. There's this warmth and there's this familiarity and that can really be communicated through humor and that humor will really break down the ice and break down the barriers and kind of show people, you know, I'm of the same culture. I speak the same language as you. We are the same people and you can trust me. And you know, there were just so many, there were multiple times where I would see people open the door. And as soon as they hear Ceci or Luz speaking to them in Spanish, their face breaks out into a huge smile. You know, and there were other people who Ceci and Luz were standing outside their door for a good two to three minutes straight, just yelling through the door, um, really talking, having a full conversation through the window, you know, once the people living there realized that they weren't going to leave anytime soon and they had to start responding to them. And then after a few minutes of that persistence and, again, cracking jokes through the window, too, the door would be open for them. You got to share the wealth with the senses or use the spray. We're not the police. We just want to count the number. What? You know, Ceci said that it's critical to use humor because humor is a way to communicate a cultural, racial, and experiential affinity to another person. And so that was definitely a strategy, one of the strategies that they used to try to connect um, with these communities. And these are hard to count communities for a reason, right? Like these are communities that have systemically been marginalized by American governments, whether you're talking about federal, state, local, this is the reality of being a minoritized community in America. And so as a result of that, there's this extreme distrust in the government. And that has become heightened, especially in the Latino community over the past four years with the Trump administration, which has definitely 
exhibited a lot of xenophobic rhetoric and xenophobic policies. And so the challenges that Sassi and Luz found, especially when they were going around in Latino neighborhoods, was people were worried that either ICE was going to deport them and fine them. They were worried that the government was going to be able to track them. Some people in communities of color were worried that they wouldn't even be counted because they had a criminal record. What's usually like the concerns that people have? They're, they're not um, citizens or they have a record. They have a record. A like, record. Yeah, and we're like, it doesn't ask you any of that. So what we do is we bust their chops and then we go, come on, we got to get counted. We need it. And then um, because of her legal head, she's able to say it doesn't matter if you have a legal record. And we don't ask. There's no questions on about having a legal record. And so it was a lot of, hey, I'm one of you. I speak your language. I'm the same color as you. I have the same culture as you. And I'm filling out the census and I'm asking you to fill out the census. And I know you don't trust them, but you can trust me when I tell you that this is not going to harm you. In the article, you mentioned some statistics, a little bit sobering, um, you know, particularly in Albany, that the rates of census responses were pretty low, less than 50 percent in some of those neighborhoods. Do you think that your experience following Ceci and Luz around, you know, you saw kind of some success or some, you know, some measure of hope that that folks are are going to fill out the census in this neighborhood, these neighborhoods. Hello, I'm so sorry, sis. Um, we're just helping with outreach workers from Capital District Latinos helping people fill out their census. It does not take long. We can do it right here. I filled it out online. You did? All right, get it, girl. I took a picture of my thing too. I believe you. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, I definitely saw success. I mean, Luz told me that after a month of doing this outreach and she hadn't updated her numbers from the last time I had spoken with her. But as of then, um, she had gotten 50 people to complete their census and she had contacted over 150 people. And that wasn't even updated from, you know, that was not an updated number when I spoke with her. That was probably a number from a week or two prior. So I have a feeling that there definitely was some success just from my time, and I didn't even spend too much time with them. I mean, maybe it was like a half hour, hour total combined. But from the time that I did spend with them, I definitely saw people opening doors that I never would have expected to open doors. There was one household where after a lot of persistence um, on the outside, they did open the door and Ceci went inside their home and helped them figure out how to fill out their census on their phone. It takes a and there were just multiple people who I saw this kind of they relented <laughs> and they said okay fine I'll go ahead and fill out my census because someone was on top of them and, you know, even when you think about it, you go out to more, you know, affluent suburbs and people don't necessarily like answering the door. They're busy. They have stuff going on. We don't really like answering our doors anymore. We like to know who's visiting us. Right. And so 
it's just, it's helpful to just have someone come to you and be like, Hey, listen, I'm here. Let's just get this done together right now. <laughs> That's definitely um, what they did and what they, what they accomplished. So I think, I think there is hope, but that's what's so important. And this was a huge concern that was relayed to me, not just from Ceci and Luz, but also from people with Capital District Latinos and other groups, which is that, first of all, the local governments and the federal government um, really waited too long to provide organizations with funding to do this outreach work. So waiting until September to give them the funding so that they can contract these outreach workers was just waiting too long. We should have gotten way ahead of the game. But second of all, that you have to be strategic when you're trying to reach these communities. And so if you don't have people like Ceci and Luz working for you in your office, in your governmental office, then again, be proactive about it. Partner with your local nonprofit organizations that consistently work with these communities. But it also speaks to this larger problem of how much communication and contact consistently there is between governments and these distrusting communities. And that's something that they think is kind of the larger issue here that really needs to be worked on. You know, if we didn't wait for um, election season, or if we didn't wait for census season, and instead we're consistently communicating with these communities and contacting them and establishing relationships with them and trust with them, then we wouldn't have this scramble every once in a blue moon when we need something from them. Hello. Somebody was here, Sassy. Look, it's right there. Oh, yeah. Hola, senora. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. 